you would this morning, turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 12. Second Samuel and chapter 12, and we'll start with verse 1 and read through 7a. <clears throat> Hear the word of the Lord from Second Samuel. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Let us pray. Lord, would you humble our hearts this morning before your word? More than listening to ourself, or our friends, or... Even the preacher, we need to listen to you, Lord. So may your word go forth this morning in the form of preaching. Through the foolishness of preaching, may men and women come to Christ for salvation. Help us this morning to point to you in the next words that we say. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord reigns. Uh, It's what three different psalms say near the end of the Psalter, which is the book of Psalms. They begin by saying, the Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. Which is exactly what we sang last week uh, when, as I pointed out, the Holy Spirit joined together the message and the words that we sang, the songs that we sing here. Uh, It wasn't planned by us, but it was planned by God. And He does. The Lord reigns. No matter what's going on in your world, or in your family's world, or in the national world, or the global world, uh, we can always say, no matter when, or where, or what, that the Lord reigns. (laughs) And that's good news. That's good news, because the true King... The, as I'm saying this morning, the King of Kings uh, is still on the throne. And as we said in our creed, as we pray to Him in our time of intercession, He is praying with us. He's a compassionate King. He is a good King. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. 
Jesus is, the Bible says, the Alpha and the Omega, which is kind of like saying He's the A and the Z. So he's, he's the everything. As far as the beginning and the end, He has no beginning and He has no end. So there was never a point when God didn't exist. There was never a point when God wasn't King, Creator, and there never will be. And as I'm saying, that's good news to hear. In tumultuous times, in family crisis, in personal crisis, uh, we need someone who is stable to turn to. And there's none other better than Jesus Christ. Interestingly, this story here um, is quite powerful. It's seven verses, and yet it's seven of the most important verses in the Bible. (laughs) Now, you could probably turn anywhere in the Bible and make that same case, but just let that slide, because today we're focusing here on 1 Samuel. I often say, this has to be my favorite story, or this has to be my favorite uh, coupling of verses, and yet it's all over the place. It begins to be my favorite. But here in particular, (laughs) these These sobering words, you are the man. You are that man, David. Strike at the heart of all of us. uh, Because we've all been where David's been before. We've been in sin. We've been caught in our wickedness. And we've all also demanded justice on people that were doing the same thing that we were doing. David, remember, has more than one wife. Um, He's a powerful man, so he probably had really good-looking wives. And yet, one of his soldiers has one wife. And he takes her. He ultimately takes his soldier's life. Sends him to the front of the battle. His soldier, interestingly, as you juxtapose the two, is actually more righteous than David in in ways. (laughs) Especially in this way. In this scene here. Now David is called a man after God's own heart, but it's because of how he responds even when he sins. It's not because these actions here are condoned. Remember what happened is David stayed behind, which was not normal. Normally the king went out to battle... Because the king in the ancient Near East was a symbol of power. That institution of kingship was totalitarian. It was absolute. The king did what he wanted, and whatever he wanted, he did. And so when the king went to war, it was a sign of his dominance, him being near the front or in the battle himself, which is why kings went to battle. Now today that's not necessarily the case. We want to protect the, the president at all costs. But that is not how the ancient world worked. But here, David, remember he's a warrior, he stays behind and allows his men to go out. It's almost like, I'm going to take some time off here and relax. And in his relaxing, he notices a woman bathing from his high position in, 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 the, uh, in the palace. And so he calls her up to have sex with him. He has sex with her, and she ends up getting pregnant. Now, he maybe thought after they had had sex, hey, he sent her back home. You know, that's it. Uh, You know, um, 
however you want to say it, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. And uh, it was over. And so he thinks this is it. And it's not it. She gets pregnant. Then he has this huge cover-up, quite elaborate. He brings in her husband and he says, you know what? Take some time off. You need it. You've been on the battlefield. So just relax. Have some wine. Spend a night with with your wife here. And hopefully have sex with her so that it looks like you produce this baby. Interestingly, Uriah does not do that, but instead he says, look, my guys are out on the front of the battle. We're, 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 we're at war. There's no way I'm going to go and enjoy my wife and this and that when my guys are out there on the battlefield. So he actually sleeps at the palace on the front steps waiting to go back out. Now that's a dedicated soldier, but it's also someone who is righteous. They're doing what's right. They know something is not right, and they're doing what is right even when they're told to do something else. Now that's, that's powerful. David, on the other hand, is doing the exact opposite. He knows what is right and is purposefully not doing what is right and trying to deceive and trying to cover up. Which is what we do when we are found out, is it not? We all, our initial response when somebody finds out our sin, finds out our way, when we are exposed, the immediate first wave, our kind of instinct, our natural instinct, is to cover it up, to lie, to try to do everything to preserve um, rather than to repent, rather than to confess. It's what we do as humans. Isn't it what our first parents did? Adam and Eve? Yeah, when they sinned, what did they try to do? Cover it up. They went and hid. They even made for themselves fig leaves to cover themselves. When God gets there, He says, where are you? And when God gets there, He says, fig leaves aren't enough. You can't cover up your sin. But I can I can cover your sin with my sacrifice. And so it's not fig leaves, but instead the blood of some animal that was sacrificed and then they're clothed. Interesting, isn't it? Blood has to be had when we sin. It's a principle that's at work in all religions. Every religion you go to that ever had any type of sacrifice had blood sacrifice. And so, David covers it up for at least nine months. The baby is born. Uriah is dead. Everything's quiet. The media is off his back. Nobody's asking questions at this point. Except for one guy. Nathan. Except for one prophet of God who gets a divine word from God and has to go see the king. (laughs) Now let me frame this by saying Nathan's job at this point is probably the most dangerous job you could ever have. You see, in the ancient Near East, which is the context of the Old Testament, the king was God. The Pharaoh... He was the son of the sun. So he was the S-O-N of the S-U-N. Because the sun in, in Egypt normally was the highest 
most powerful god because quite frankly the sun is most dominant in Egypt besides the Nile River, which both of them were gods. Interestingly too, by the way, in Exodus with the plagues, what does God do? He shuts down the sun. What does God do? He turns the Nile to blood. Yeah, you think that's accidental? Not at all. God is showing up the gods, quote-unquote, of Egypt. He's defeating them in the Egyptians' eyes and showing Himself as dominant. And so you have to think in the mindset of these people, Pharaoh was God. The king was a god. And so you didn't, I mean, think of the movie 300 if you've ever seen that movie. Uh, when Xerxes, he says, I am a god. You're, you're, in, you're talking in the presence of a god. You don't just walk in on a god. You don't just say what you want to say to a god. They would have you killed. You also have to understand ancient Near Eastern prophecy. So it was a divine kingship in the, in the uh, ancient world. But not only that, the prophets in the ancient world worked for the king. It was kind of like his cabinet. So our president picks a cabinet, you know, advisors. Well, the same way with kingship. The kings would have picked advisors. Who better to advise than people who can foresee into the future? Which were prophets. You know, the prophets are called seers. S-E-E-R-S. They can see into the future. Supposedly. Most of the time, they just simply agreed with the king. Why? Because he paid them. That's why. King says, hey, I want to go take Greece. What do the prophets say? More power to you. The gods are going to be with you. Because if they don't, and he wants to take Greece anyway, well, off with your heads. Why? Because the king is God. That's why. He does what he wants. If he wants a woman, if he wants your wife, too bad, subject Your life is over. Isn't this what happened even in Israel when Jezebel and Ahab were in rulership? Ahab, who is an Israelite king, says, you know, I really would like that property of land next to us, next to the palace. What a beautiful, you know, beautiful little landscape there. Jezebel said, his wife Jezebel, who's wicked, says, and by the way, she's, she's, um, she's not Israelite. She's not Hebrew. She's actually uh, Assyrian. She says, take it. He said, oh no, I can't do that here. I mean, that may work everywhere else, but it doesn't work in Israel. Why? Because the covenant forbade it. The king could not do in Israel whatever he wanted to do. Why? Because he wasn't God. That's why. But Jezebel, in her pagan thinking, her ancient Near Eastern thinking, says... Okay, so the covenant says we can't, but I'll show you that we can. She pays three witnesses to say that the guy's lying. They find the guy lying in uh, the judicial system. They put him to death. His land goes up for auction. She's the only bidder. Huh, coincidence. Here's the land. And it says what they did was wicked in the Lord's eyes. Why? Because the king isn't ultimate. He doesn't get to do what he wants. He works for someone in Israel. 
Nowhere else, by the way, does this kind of understanding go. Everywhere else, the king is God. He's ultimate. You know this from your Greco-Roman history. The Caesars demanded worship. It's why the Christians were persecuted early on. To say Jesus was Lord was to say that Caesar wasn't. Therefore, they were killed. They were fed to the wild animals in the Colosseums. They were put up against gladiators with no weapons to defend themselves. Why? Because Christians, because Israelites, because the Bible says that the king is not God. That's the relationship between God and the king is he's not. And it's why Nathan has the courage to do what is right here. To go to the king, the one who could simply say, let's continue with the cover-up and kill Nathan. He's the only one who apparently knows about this. He could have done that. Notice this as we continue in verse 7, what Nathan says. You are the man, David. You did what you're saying this man should die for. You did with real people. You didn't do it with sheep. You did it with a person's life, David. You killed him. You took his wife. And the baby will die too now because of your sin. Notice what he says. Thus says the Lord, verse 7, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. You didn't do that, David. And I gave your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in His sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son for you did it secretly but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son David said to Nathan I have sinned against the Lord and Nathan said to David the Lord notice this also has put away your sin You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. I anointed you king over Israel. I gave you the throne. I protected you from Saul. It wasn't your military wit. It wasn't your political savvy or genius. It was me. And now you shrug me. You scorn me. You disobey me. Are you seeing how it applies to your life? 
how it applies to my life. God has given us so much. He did it. He gave you your spouse. He gave you your children. He gave you your good gifts. And we shrug Him. Big deal. I did this. We turn it right around on its head. It's interesting to look at ancient Israel and see how they had three different offices that helped to keep one another accountable. Much like in America, we have three different offices, the judicial, the legislative, and the executive branches that are supposed to hold each other in accountability so that not one gets dominance over the others. In Israel... You had the king, who, as I've already made a case for you, is not divine. Divinely appointed, yes, but he himself is not God and not all-powerful. But you had a second office, which was the priesthood. So the throne and the temple. And oftentimes those two would work together for mutual benefit. But this third office, this office of prophet that arose in Israel... (laughs) and came to an end with Malachi, that's the one that held the others in check, mainly. The prophets came along and said, you think you're all-powerful? You're going to be destroyed. The priesthood, even if it's totally corrupt, is calling them back to God. The prophets never say, do away with the priesthood, the sacrifices, the temple. They never say that. But they do say, if you don't turn, God will even take those things away from you. See, at the the heart of it, we as humans are idolatrous. You may not even think of yourself or myself as that. But it's what we do. For instance, we we think, okay, well, I I go to church, so God will let me off on this. Or I I read my Bible and I pray and I try to be, I try to do the... And we always offer up to God all these little things that we do, but the things that we do point to Him. Why do we go to church? Because Jesus is here and He's alive. Why do we read the Bible? So that we can know the risen Christ. You don't read it just to check it off and say, okay, I did my duty. Now God, where's my my blessing? That's how they began to think in Israel. They started thinking, God's not going to destroy us. We have the temple. We we, we do the sacrifices. There's no way He's going to destroy us. Why would God destroy His own work? That'd be stupid. Why would he? Because the temple became idolatrous. They were worshiping the temple and not the one the temple was pointing to. Why the sacrifices? The sacrifices point to the ultimate sacrifice. Too easily we slip off into idolatry. Whatever it may be. You see, in Israel... The true prophet, the true king, the true priest is God. All these other people work for Him. The preacher works for Him. The theologian works for Him. The prophets, they were the theologians of the day. The priests, they were the worshipers. They helped you worship. And of course, the king ruled over you politically. 
But God was the true king. He's the one who sent the prophet. He's the one who instituted the priesthood. And in our own lives, He must be our prophet, priest, and king. It's what we read this morning in our our readings. What Christopher read. His sacrifice? I'm sorry, what Bobby read, I think, from Hebrews. Didn't you have the Hebrews? Yes, Bobby. His sacrifice was once and for all. Everybody else had to do it every single year. But not this one. This one once. Because He was the perfect sacrifice. You see, Jesus is the King of kings. That's what that means. He's King even over kings. However they come. Dictators, presidents, totalitarian leaders, despots, or kings. He is the ultimate King. He is on His throne. Jesus is all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's all-wise. He's all-good. And He's everywhere present. Now you can't beat that. And yet we settle for less. You see, there's really three types of government that can be identified where Jesus must be King. The first one is your self-government. You are in charge of you and your own governance. I mean, you're governor of you. And some of us are not very good governors. Most of us aren't. That's why we need Jesus. I'm I'm speaking to myself. You know, when I preach, as I always say to you, I talk to myself. I mean, essentially, me, that's a monologue. That's why you don't talk. You can kind of nod and amen or whatever, but you can agree with me, but you don't talk. Uh, because I'm talking to myself, essentially, and you're overhearing this discussion that God has given to me. And so when I say we all need to be better governors, it's because we make ourselves as ultimate. Jesus must be king of our own self-government first. We must love God in order to even teach our children. And that's the second one, family. The government of the family. You were built into a family. Even if it's a broken one. Even as if it's a dysfunctional one. And I don't know many that aren't. You know, at Thanksgiving we're reminded of how dysfunctional our families are. We think fond of them until we're with them. And then we remember the reality. And yet we're called to live with them. We're called to love them. Forgive them. Now that's hard in family. It's harder to forgive family sometimes than it is strangers, co-workers. Jesus must be king of our family. Not only of ourself. Not only of in our heart, but also of our family. And of course the last one is political, social. Jesus must be king even of America. Now, people bucket that. Used to, they didn't. They, oh, yeah, rock on, rock on. No, not today. Listening to a talk show, even this week, the guy said, I mean, who really cares about gay marriage? Who really cares about defining marriage? Who really cares about that? I thought to myself, well, not a lot of people. 
but God does. Does that mean anything anymore? That God does? Guess who created marriage? Guess who uses marriage in the Bible as a symbol of Himself and our relationship with Him? Who cares? Well, God does. And if He's king, and if He's ultimate, and if He's all-powerful, then that means something. Now, that's not a popular message. But it's one that we must hold on to as Christians if we are ever to allow Jesus to be king. One day it may cost us our life to say that Jesus is king. To buck against the establishment. In Romania, this happened. In Russia, this happened. People were put to death because they were believers. In other countries today, that happens now. In places where there is Islamic rule, you can't go out on the streets and preach. I was reading a story just this morning about someone who purposefully goes out and preaches the gospel in the courtyard, in the public square, and is threatened by their very life. And you know what they said in the interview? They said, well, sometimes that's what it takes. Martyrdom. Most of us just say, ah, just let it go to pot. Ah, who really cares? And I'm saying, God does. Who cares about the unborn? Those who don't even have a voice. They can't put up a billboard. They can't tell us the pain they feel when the scissors go into the back of their neck. Who speaks for them? God will. Trust me, God will. And we better. As the people of God, we better pray for our nation to understand that Jesus is King. But it starts with us. It's not good enough just to have an evil nemesis out here, but instead we must have Jesus as our King first and foremost. And King of our family. And then He can become King of our nation. Because look, if you lose your children to political calls, you've lost the whole ballgame. If you lose your soul trying to save the world, you've lost everything. Jesus must be King of your life. Why? Because He's the King of kings. That's why. He's the King even over all kings. Isn't it fascinating that Nazi Germany voted as a democratic type of vote to kill Jews? To institute Hitler in the Third Reich. That was legal to segregate Jews. We look back abhorrent, saying, what, what kind of sick people? You know what kind of sick people? Sinful people, modern people, some of the smartest people in the world. You know where most of our philosophy comes from? Germany. These are some of the smartest people in the world, and yet, because of sin and wickedness in the moral public square of their country... They voted in a person 
that is really the representative of evil for most people. It doesn't matter what our nation votes in as legal or not. What matters is what the true legislator knows. We have it right here. It's as plain as day in the Scripture. God as king or us as king, voting in whatever we want. Listen, the question we have this morning is very simple, and it is, who is king? Is it a political system? Is that your salvation? Is it family? Is that your salvation? Or is it yourself? Is that your salvation? None of those are salvation, and all of them point to God. Everyone, the fact that you're alive points to God. Your family points to God. The nation points to God. He must be king. He must be authoritative over all of that. Is He in your life? Because it begins with you. Don't look down the row or don't look over here or don't look at our nation. Look at yourself this morning and ask, is Jesus king of my life? When, when the finger comes at you, you are the man. What are we going to do? Repent? Confess? Believe? Submit? Or are we going to cover up? Deceive? And disobey? This morning, pray to God. Submit to Him with all of your heart. Do what is right. Those are simple, and yet they're very hard to do sometimes. The Lord reigns. It's a source of joy. It's a source of good news. The Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. The Lord reigns. No matter how many times I hit this desk, He reigns. He reigns. And one of these days, we're going to go meet Him and reign with Him, He says. And what a joy that will be. All the arguments, all the discussions, all the turmoil around us, one day will cease and there will be calm after the storm. It's the day we look forward to. It's the day we believe in. It's what the Bible and the prophets say is the day of the Lord. The day of reckoning. And it's the one that we have true hope in because of Jesus Christ. He's the true King. Do you know Him? He's the King over kings. Do you know Him? You can this morning. And you can submit to Him in faith if you'll only come. Amen.